Well, today we are, of course, continuing um, our uh, study in the book of Acts, and, and it's really a good place uh, for getting ready for the holidays, just the whole time, the whole thing of the first, uh, you know, five or six chapters of, of Acts is uh, just really dynamic and, and brings us back to the beginning and, and reminds us of our calling and and when we read it uh, as if we're there, hopefully we're receiving uh, uh, the message and we end up with the same kind of passion uh, as uh, those people did, uh, you know, right there back at the uh, inauguration of the new covenant and the kingship of Messiah and all of that. Uh, and not just uh, ho-hum, well, there we go, what time's the oneg, you know? And... Uh, uh, so uh, hopefully uh, we really uh, can uh, really get a vision for what God has uh, called us for. Also, uh, something we haven't really focused on, but we're hearing it, is are you noticing that the Haftorah portions, uh, beginning a few weeks ago and going for the next few weeks, are all coming from the second part of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40? Uh, I, they're called, uh, these Shabbat days are called the Shabbat of Consolation, uh, mean, meaning if you're familiar with how the calendar works, you know, uh, earlier in the summer there was three weeks of sadness, right? Uh, th- uh, really three weeks of, uh, of, uh, of, of remembering uh, difficult times culminating uh, on uh, Tisha B'Av. Right, the ninth of Av, where we remember the destruction of both temples and and uh, all the sad things, and we read the book of Lamentations uh, and all of that. Then uh, after that, it's sort of like this: it like goes down, hits the bottom, and then starts coming back up. Uh, and so from Tisha B'Av now to uh, Rosh Hashanah. We're thinking about uh, redemption, salvation, deliverance, uh, the love of God, and, and all of that, because uh, all of it is designed to prepare our hearts uh, for the high holy days where we repent and we return and, and uh, experience uh, a newness in our, in our lives. So hopefully we're getting the most out of these days and out of the, out of the uh, holidays, and so Everything going on here in Acts really reflects, I think, uh, the heart of the the heart of the matter. Okay, so last week uh, we uh, talked about the beginning of Acts chapter two. Remember, we said there's three parts to Acts chapter two. There's the event, there's the explanation of the event, and then there's the reaction to the uh, to the explanation. <laughs> and uh, and so today we want to focus on uh, Peter's speech. Okay, so we saw last time that that what Luke is bringing out is that this is the beginning of Israel's restoration. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the of what uh, Israel had hoped for uh, over and over again. You know, uh, before the Babylonian captivity, during the captivity, after the captivity, the Second Temple period that uh, the, 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 the day would come, you know, uh, of, of restoration. Uh, and so Luke is bringing out 
that it is beginning. It's taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, the audience, uh, the participants are Jewish people. The people uh, who Peter is speaking to are, uh, are, are Jewish people from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Very interesting. With Jerusalem in the middle. Okay, the centrality of Jerusalem. That's a that's another story, uh, and uh, and so very 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 important. Uh, and uh, we see that the Spirit of God is poured out. This this was the promise. This is the immersion of the ruach, the baptism of the of the Holy Spirit. But uh, what uh, Yeshua talks about, and what um, uh, we read in the beginning of uh, the first chapter of uh, of Acts. And so this is it. Remember, we said that everything that comes before it is, is leading up to it, and everything that comes after it is really the, uh, the aftermath, the consequences uh, and understanding uh, of it. It takes place on Shavuot. It's in Jerusalem. It's among Jewish people. He's bringing this out. So now, uh, now Peter is going to uh, uh, explain it. Now, you know, uh, later on this year at MSI, I'm going to be teaching a class on the speeches in Acts. The speeches in Acts. The speeches in the book of Acts are very, uh, very dynamic and very important. You know what they tell us, among other things, when you read the speeches in Acts, the sermons, the messages, whatever, terms, whatever term you want to use, we might say, well, what did the early with the apostles when they spoke? What did they say? How did they communicate the good news? Uh, well, here you have it. <laughs> okay, uh, and it's really too bad that they're often neglected. Uh, what Peter says in chapter two and chapter three, we just read them as, oh, this was the birth of the church, and this is what he said. You know, but they're very dynamic. So. I, we want to remember that. Now, you have Peter gives two speeches here at the beginning. You have one in Acts chapter 2, and then there's a follow-up in Acts chapter 3. Okay, They're both very important, and they both answer a variety of questions that people today have. And so if we would really study these speeches, we would learn a lot about communicating the good news to people in the 21st century. Okay? The focus of uh, Peter's speech in Acts 2 is what has happened, and what it means to us now, okay? The focus of his speech in chapter 3 is, this is what's going to happen, and this, this is what's happened now, this is what isn't happening now, and this is what's going to happen. So you know how we like to say sometimes, well, uh, the Messiah has come, and we experience uh, the Alam Haba present but not yet, right? Present but not completely yet, right? So you could say that uh, Peter's speech in chapter 2 is the present, and uh, the speech in chapter 3 is not yet, <laughs> okay? And that kind of will uh, help us to frame this, uh, to frame this uh, uh, a, a little bit, okay? All right. So, I, um, interestingly enough, I, when you look at the different uh, uh, speeches, there's, there's some things always to pay attention to. And uh, we could say that there's a few things that are contained in these messages, right? The announcement that an age of fulfillment has come, that the, the, the new age has come, the promised age has come. Uh, and then an account of the ministry of Yeshua and what it means, okay? 
and then uh, citations from the Tanakh, and a call to repentance. Uh, and that is a very nice little outline of, uh, you'll see, of uh, a number of these different speeches. All right, so uh, we come here uh, to, um, we'll say verse 12. Okay, so uh, you have the 120, right? And, uh, uh, and, and we see that, that they are... Uh, uh, have, they have these uh, tongues of fire over their heads. People can see it. Uh, and uh, people gathered to, to see this and hear this are hearing, uh, hearing the, the people speak, uh, uh, but they know that they don't come from all their own countries and all their own provinces, but they're hearing them supernatural. This is the evidence of the pouring out of the Ruach here anyway that they're hearing them speak in their own language, all right? Uh, and then, by the way, remember, we, we kind of made a big deal out of this, that, you know, it's important to know what they said, not just that this happened, but what they said. And, uh, and you have it there in verse, uh, verse uh, 11, the mighty deeds of God. They uh, spoke the mighty deeds of God. Very important that, uh, that there was communication, and, uh, and that people were hearing, uh, you know, great words uh, about, uh, about God. Uh, now, as we'll see, these, I know I uh, asked in our Wednesday morning Bible study, we were talking about this a little bit, and I said, uh, what do you think the mighty deeds were, you know? Does it go all the way back to, is it like the flood, maybe, or is it, is it the exodus, you know? And I suggested that maybe Peter's speech is uh, kind of gives us a hint of what uh, the mighty deeds of God that, uh, that they were hearing. Uh, because when Peter speaks, you know, it, uh, it doesn't say that uh, there were uh, other interpreters. Uh, so I would just simply suggest that Peter is speaking in his language and they're all hearing it. They're all hearing it in their own language, that this is a prime example of what was of, uh, they, they were speaking in, they were speaking in tongues and people were understanding what was being said. And, uh, and here I think you have exhibit A in, in Peter's speech. Now there's something else I'll just mention about this, about how they all heard uh, uh, what was speaking in their own language. It does bring a sense of unity uh, to them. It does sort of give the notion, you know, that, that uh, people are coming from far away. And, you know, language is something that uh, really can uh, be a big divider. Ask anybody from the province of Quebec uh, in Canada uh, about that. Uh, or maybe even in uh, Louisiana, uh, perhaps. You know, uh, that uh, uh, language uh, is a big identifier of, uh, you know, in, in people's lives. Uh, and so here you have people, although they're Jews, they're, co they're coming from other places. And, you know, I'm Jewish, but I don't speak uh, 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 other languages uh, besides uh, English. Some Hebrew, I speak a little Hebrew, could carry on a basic conversation. But I speaking, I would need to hear it in English. Uh, even though I'm, uh, uh, you know, Jewish, right? So uh, 
By the way, I don't know why I'm thinking this, and I don't even know why I'm saying it, but I'll say it anyway. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes people will say to me, plus speaking at church, they'll say, now, were you born in America? Isn't that great? Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in. Okay. Uh, so I said, why? Because I have a thick accent, evidently. Okay. <laughs> okay. Maybe from one part of the country. I don't know. But uh, anyways, uh, getting back to this, this unity of language. It's unity of language. So I, I, there is a, a, a thought, and Will uh, sent me a, a, an email asking me about it. I didn't mention it uh, last time because I, well, just can't say everything all the time. Uh, and that is, would this be like a reversal of the Tower of Babel, uh, where nations were separated, you know? Uh, perhaps, maybe, you know, the, the idea of that, yes, uh, I, I don't think I could go so far as to say that this is that, you know what I mean, that this is why it happened. Or, but it is an interesting observation, you know, because one thing I'll say about Babel, remember what God said, he wanted the nations, he wanted people to fill the earth, right? And, and so what happens at Babel is uh, part of it, there's a judgment, but another part, is, part of it is, is God is actually is forcing the issue and causing the nations, causing them to disperse. So I, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is like the, the opposite of, of that. But I think that this, the issue of uh, the unity of languages as opposed to the separation of languages, it is a very interesting observation uh, uh, to, uh, to, to make there. Okay, because certainly uh, one of the... Um, one of the defining um, attributes of life in the Alam Haba or in God's kingdom is unity of peoples, right? So that's kind of interesting, kind of interesting. All right, now getting to the speech. All right. So they, they were confused. It says, they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what's going on? You know, what does this mean? See, so Peter is going to explain what this means. Okay. But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. So now Peter gets up, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. So the first thing he does is dispel that they're drunk. Okay. Uh, he says they're not drunk. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting his reasoning, what he says is just kind of interesting. you got to wonder if he had kind of like a smile on his face when he says this, uh, you know? By the way, you know, uh, do you know that there was a little book written a long time ago called uh, The Humor of... The name of the book is called The Humor of Christ. You remember that? El Elton Trueblood wrote it. Many, many years. It's not in print, I don't believe. It's not in print. I think I was talking to Jim uh, Klein about it. I tried to find it, but it was hard to... Locate that, that there is all kinds, there is humor, there is irony, uh, sarcasm uh, that Yeshua uses, that the apostles use. It's kind of interesting. Uh, and, and you just got to wonder if Peter is like, it's too early in the day. I mean, that's his answer there, you know? I, I, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day, okay? 
So it's too early. So, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Okay? So now he gets down to it. This is what was spoken through Joel. No introduction to it. No, you know, this is what was spoken through Joel. Okay, so now this is in the, the uh, prophet Joel in chapter 2. The first thing we want to understand is that the whole thing is rooted in a promise to Israel. Okay? Again, the whole thing is rooted in a promise to Israel. And so, again, you know, go back to the beginning. It's Pentecost. It's Shavuot. It's in Jerusalem. He's talking to Jews. The whole, this is, so far, this whole event is a Jewish event uh, uh, that, is, that is taking place. Okay? Very important. All right. So let's turn to Joel chapter 2. Okay? Joel chapter 2. So... What's interesting about this is that this, what, what um, Peter quotes is in the middle of a larger section. And there's something that comes before it, and there's something that comes after it. Okay? It's in Joel 2.28 to the end of the chapter. 2.28 to uh, 32. That's what he's uh, quoting. And he's quoting it from the Septuagint. So, you know, we're reading it from the translation of a Hebrew text into English. All right, but if you go back, uh, just to save some time, just two verses before it, right? Yeah, right, verse 26. And you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, uh, and that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other, and my people will never be put to shame. Then you see, and it will come about after this, Interesting. It'll come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters will prophesy and, and so on. And then you have the quote. And then right after the quote, right after the quote, remember there were no chapter divisions or in your Bible, like even like um, subheadings or paragraphs or anything like that. So then I, right after the quote, you have this. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them from there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. Okay. So it's interesting because what comes before it and what comes after it, obviously, uh, as you can tell, this whole section is about what we would call the consummation about the end of the end. You know, when all Israel shall be saved, as we read in Zechariah, when uh, Israel will never be put to shame, Israel will be vindicated, the nations will be judged, and all that. Well, that hasn't happened. That, that hasn't happened, okay? But that does not stop Peter from understanding that this part about pouring out the Spirit, that's happening, even though the other parts aren't happening. Now, I, I will say that when we get to this speech in chapter 3, he, he's going to explain uh, in a certain way why that is. Okay? All right. So that's important. So what Peter is communicating here in uh, Acts chapter 2 is not only that this is rooted in a promise to Israel, but it is, this is the beginning of the end. Not the end of the end, clearly, but the beginning of the end. 
This is the beginning of the uh, uh, the uh, Olam Haba. This is the beginning of the uh, the beginning of the cons- beginning of the consummation. One could say, okay, and uh, and so it's this pouring out of the Spirit and the immediate meaning of that that uh, that that he is explaining what has happened. He's answering the question: What's going on? All right, so. He says, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days. Well, we can stop there. <laughs> it shall be in the last days. So Peter understands that this is the last days. This is the last days. Okay? Uh, now, uh, later on in the letters, uh, in, the, in the letter, the epistles, whether they be of uh, Peter, of Paul, of John, uh, the regardless of who's being written to, they sprinkle their text with the last days, these last days, right? We won't take the time to look at them, but you can look them up. You know, uh, one of the real famous ones is in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In the, you know, these are the last days, and remember what's going to be in the last days. Things will get bad and worse and, and so on. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, refers to these times as the last days, the last days. So that's important, is that, I, I mean, they did not know, one thing they did not know, that we know, is that it's 2000, approximately 2,100 years later, okay? That part they did not know, all right? I, so sometimes it's hard for us to relate to that because of this great time uh, uh, gap and period. But that, that is the challenge for us, to realize that these are the last days. Uh, and Peter is bringing uh, that out. Okay? All right. That I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall uh, uh, prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Uh, even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will... In those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The main thing there, the main thing is the inclusiveness of this. That it's men, it's women, it's bond slaves, it's everybody. Okay? I, I, and this kind of reminds us uh, a little bit of Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, the New Covenant passage. In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read uh, here in verse 34, and they shall not teach again his man or his neighbor and each of his, uh, and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. From the least of them to the greatest of them the inclusive nature of this uh, a covenant and, uh, uh, and, and people who, who receive the Ruach. Because prior to this time, it's not like there was no uh, Holy Spirit, but uh, you did not have a, a pouring out of the Ruach on everybody. It was kings uh, or prophets you know, or priests or others for a specific task to do, right? But here, it's kind of like, remember what Moses says 
in, uh, I think it's in the 11th chapter of Numbers. I wish that everybody uh, uh, prophesied in Israel, right? Uh, and, and so uh, here you have now uh, this uh, uh, pouring out of the Ruach. Uh, and, uh, and that is what is so, uh, you know, dynamic, the inclusive nature uh, here. Okay. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. Now, did they see all of this? Uh, the text doesn't tell us that they did. But again, remember that parts of this, uh, I, uh, what, that Peter's main objective is explaining this pouring out of the Ruach, and that perhaps uh, some of this is what will be at the end, or perhaps they did see it, or uh, uh, perhaps it is uh, talking about like when Yeshua was crucified. You know, you did have supernatural uh, uh, events uh, uh, taking place. The sky became dark, so on and so forth, right? Okay? All right. I, I, and notice, then it says in verse 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness, uh, the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay. Now we'll come back to a little bit of this, especially verse 21. But the point is for us here is that Peter is saying this is rooted in the promise of the uh, world to come to, to Israel, okay? So this is what's taking place. So that should uh, 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 help us because what he's saying here is this is the beginning of the new covenant. And in, uh, you know, in rabbinic literature, this pouring out of the Ruach uh, is a sign of the world to come. Clearly, it's a sign of the world to come. Uh, and, uh, and here, Peter is saying, okay, this is uh, beginning to happen. Okay, now, so, so he just simply reads them the text. Okay, It's interesting, he doesn't go verse by verse and exegete the text. He just reads the text. Get this, this is that. Okay, and now he's going to relate how Yeshua has something to do with it. Because he hasn't said that yet. All right? Okay. Men of Israel, okay, so we see who he's talking to. Men of Israel, listen to these words. <laughs> Yeshua the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, because at that time Yeshua had quite a following, you know, and they know that, that uh, uh, there were signs and wonders and miraculous things, and, and he spoke with great authority and uh, like no other person. And we read that through, through, through the Gospels, right? Uh, and so one of the things uh, that we get from this, uh, kind of like one of the things we said last week, is that the signs and the wonders and the miracles were all to give attestation, proof of, of his uniqueness, uh, of his messiahship, not as an end unto themselves. Okay, and he says, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Very important phrase, right? Very important phrase. Uh, that this was part of the plan of God. Okay? He's telling them this. This was part of the plan. That he should uh, be delivered up. 
and that he should die, this was not just a case of mob violence, uh, and it wasn't uh, uh, simply a case of, uh, you know, um, you, you thought you got rid of him, okay? But this is part of the plan of a God. Now, the th- you thought you got rid of him could actually be kind of like in Peter's uh, mind here. Because when he says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting up an end to the agony, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Okay, so what he is saying is the one who you nailed to the cross, this was all part of the plan of God. He's still here. He's not gone. He rose from the dead. Okay? Uh, and, and as these, the, the, the speeches and the chapters play out, we will see that the way the apostles explain all the things they're doing is that they happen to be the people there, but that Yeshua is the one who's doing this work, who continues to do this work. Okay? Uh, and, and so th- this is uh, very, very important, of course. All right, so he's saying that he, he rose from the dead. Right. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't talk about the, you know, you know he's explaining now uh, in this speech why or how the Spirit is, has come to be poured out, but his focus is on Yeshua. The focus of the entire speech is on, this is a fulfillment of the promise, and it's all about the work of the Messiah. And what he has, what he has done. May that be a lesson to us. May that always be the focal point of our message. Is what Yeshua has done. Okay, okay. Uh, so God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He put an end to the agony of death. That the this resurrection uh, broke the power of sin and death. Okay, and now what he's going to say is he's going to say this also. The fact that that even though you wanted to nail him to the to the the even though you wanted him to be off the scene, even though the Sanhedrin ruled that he uh, uh, should die, and even though the uh, Roman authorities crucified him, there's a power greater than the Sanhedrin and a power greater than the Roman authorities. And he is indeed vindicated. He's not some charlatan. He's not a a blasphemer. He's not one who should be put to death. And even though you gave him the death sentence and put him to death, death could not hold him. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon thy soul to Hades, Hades as we like to say, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Uh, Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. So he reads another passage now. Okay, first one was from Joel. Now he reads another passage uh, from Psalm 16. 
And he says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So again, you know, it's kind of interesting the way he just reads the passage. And then he says, brethren, I can confidently say that David lived, David died, and he's still dead. Okay? His tomb is with us to this day. David did not raise from the dead, okay? And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Yeshua God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Okay. Peter is doing something very, very important here. He is identifying uh, uh, Yeshua's resurrection okay, with the new covenant and, very importantly, in relationship to David. Okay? Now, but also there's a little phrase here, and in your translation it might, uh, it, it depends, I, it might be in all capitals, or it might not. When it says in verse 30, And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, that comes from Psalm 132. That's another quote. Psalm 132. And to save us a little time, you can read Psalm 132 uh, uh, on your own. I, but... What, it, what Psalm 132 is referring to is the promise that God made to David, right? Okay, so, so the promise that God made to David, God made an oath that, that one of David's descendants would sit on his throne forever. Does anybody know where we read about that? We read about that in 2 Samuel, okay? In 2 Samuel uh, chapter uh, 7. So I just want to read something about that, okay? In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, I'm not going to take the time to read the whole promise. You can read it on your own. But David's reaction to it, how David responds to the promise that God makes to him. Okay, it says uh, uh, here uh, in verse 18 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes him this great promise that one of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. Now David is going to react. David the king went in and sat down before the Lord, and he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you, has brought, you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord, for you have spoken about the house of thy servant concerning the distant future. Very important. David understands this. David understands that this is, a, this is like a, a promise, not about my lifetime, not even my son's lifetime, Solomon but the distant future, okay? And then when he, then after that, it says, this is the Torah Adam. This is the Torah of man, or the instruction for mankind, or of mankind. You have, like, there's a million different ways this gets translated. The custom of man, whatever it is. But Torah Adam is what it says in Hebrew, okay? The Torah of mankind. This great promise for the distant future that is for Israel, but also, again, uh, you know, for the, uh, for the nations. Okay, 
So uh, one of the things that, that we learn here is, is that the resurrection needed to take, this is what Peter is explaining, the resurrection of Yeshua is uh, absolutely pivotal to sitting on God's throne, to, to being the uh, son who sits on the throne uh, uh, forever. And by his being raised from the dead, he's the one who sits on the throne forever. So what, um, well, let's just keep going. All right. Now we read, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. So what he is saying is that the, the, the Spirit of God has been poured out because Yeshua, the one whom you nailed to the cross, the one who you thought that he was dead, he rose from the dead, Death could not hold him. He rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God, he sits on the throne. He is the king. And therefore, the Ruach has been poured out. And so we have the beginning of the restored kingdom of David. We have the beginning of the restored kingdom of David. You read in, uh, for example, in Amos in the ninth chapter, you read about the restored tabernacle of David. And what's very interesting, as we will see when we get to Acts chapter 15, that in that speech, that passage is quoted about the, like the resurrection of the kingdom of David. And that's why it's so important to see how Peter uses uh, Psalm 110 in verse 1, how he uses Psalm 16, and how he uses Psalm 132, uh, all to show rooted in promises of the kingship of, you know, the, the ancestor of David. This is who Yeshua is, and it's all because he, he died and he rose from the dead. And that's why this is the, the predetermined plan of God, that this indeed would be. Okay? Then he says this uh, in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain. I mean, that's a big statement. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Messiah whom you crucified. Okay? He's not, I would suggest, he's not uh, like being, like saying it like, oh, you crucified. That you might hear from modern pulpits uh, from different places. Okay? I think what he's, his point is, is that death could not hold him. You thought he was gone. But no, not at, not at all. He lives and the pouring out of the Ruach is proof that he lives, okay? And so it says here, right, that he made him Lord uh, uh, and Messiah. Well, he always was Lord and Messiah, but it's certainly demonstrated that way. Uh, and uh, what is interesting is, is that now we have this, now that he's risen from the dead, and now that the Ruach has poured out, now we have the understanding that when back in Joel, when it says at the end, it shall be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Yeshua is the Lord of salvation. That we need to understand that, everybody. Right? He's saying he is Lord and Messiah. He is the one with whom we have to do. 
Because he rose, he ascended, and he poured out the Ruach. He pours out the Ruach. Yeshua pours out the Ruach. And so he is clearly identifying Yeshua with God, in, in, you know, certainly in this, in this text. Okay? All right. So uh, I just want to make, uh, uh, next week we'll talk about their reaction okay, to, to this. And it will testify to the power of the word, the power of the word and of this uh, testimony. But uh, but a few uh, observations uh, to make. One of the things that we want to get out of this is for us today now is to understand that when we talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, I'm part of his kingdom, I'm a child of the king, uh, whatever phrase you want to use in whatever context, we're talking about the con- continuity of the kingdom of David. Let me say that again. We're talking about the continuity of the kingdom of David. It isn't like this whole new kingdom thing. You have the old kingdom of Israel, now we have a whole new kingdom thing. Or the kingdom of Israel was a type or a picture of the kingdom of God. Not so! The kingdom of David is the kingdom of God, with Yeshua as king. Now, you may have heard me say this once or twice. I don't know. Certainly, I say it in MSI classes all the time, and when it comes up. In 2 Chronicles chapter 17, by the way, you know, I'm teaching a class on the writings, and we're going to learn all about things about chronicles, okay? Okay. I, in, I, uh, it's First Chronicles. I'm sorry. I'm so, I'm so excited. Okay, in First Chronicles uh, chapter uh, 17, here you have from, uh, I'm going to call it from a later period of time, from a Second Temple point of view, the promise that God makes to David about, a, about one of his descendants sitting on the throne always. And I want us just to pay attention to one little thing. In 2 Chronicles 17, in verse 14, well, actually, verse 13, I always do that. I will be his father, he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it away from, notice what he says, from who was before you. He doesn't want to say Saul's name. Okay. Uh, But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. Now, does it... I don't want to take the time, but in 2 Samuel, it doesn't say that. It says his house and his kingdom. I will not take his kingdom away from him. But here, written later on, it's clear to us that when Chronicles is written, which is about 400 years before the coming of the Messiah, his kingdom was understood as God's kingdom. And that's why the writer of 1 Chronicles calls it my king, God's kingdom. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, he is identifying David's kingdom and God's kingdom. It's the same thing, all right? Very important, okay? When you go to, remember Luke and Acts are two volumes of one set, okay? When you go to the beginning of Luke, you go to the beginning of Luke, how was Yeshua presented in the beginning of Luke? When Gabriel, the angel, speaks to uh, Mary or Miriam, he says in verse uh, 30 of chapter 1, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall name him Yeshua. 
and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. He's saying, he, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the Messiah is identified as the Davidic king, as the Davidic king. Yeshua, to this day, at the right hand of the Father, is the Davidic king. And so this is the flowering, one might say, of David's kingdom. This, was the, this is the restoration of the tabernacle of David. Uh, and so Yeshua is the king of Israel. And the, and the good news is that he's poured out his ruach on Israel, the, starting there. Uh, you, you know, this is the good news for Israel. What is the good news for Israel? Uh, that Yeshua is the glory of Israel, right? As we read in Luke chapter 2. Uh, and he's poured out the Ruach on Israel. What, what Joel had to say. It's the beginning of, of the new covenant. He is, uh, he is, uh, the king. And, uh, you know, and, and there is evidence of it and, uh, and so on and so forth. That's, that's what he is, uh, saying. This is good news. Uh, and he's speaking it, uh, to Israel. Now, so, therefore, in our own identity and who we are in this whole thing, right? So when we say, when a Jewish person comes to embrace Yeshua, okay, I'm, I'm I, under the, uh, you know, the, the king who we've been waiting for. I, the, uh, the, the, uh, the time of oppression is over. And now I can know the Messiah, even though all around me uh, we don't yet quite experience it. I, I uh, am part of the remnant of Israel. And for everybody else, as we'll see, but we have to wait all the way to, really to chapter 10. <laughs> but uh, what we'll see is that there's like the same experience happens to Cornelius to say, this is that, okay? Uh, and that it affects the nations as well. When people from the nations embrace the Messiah, they come under the kingship of the restored house of Israel. Doesn't make them Jews, right? You know, we've been kind of focused on the Bahamas the last few weeks, right? Well, who's actually the ruler of the Bahamas? Anybody know? It's the Queen of England. Look it up, <laughs> okay? Look it up, okay? Uh, yeah, they have a prime minister and all that. They're Bahamian people. They're not British, you know, they're, they're not uh, English people. They're not people whose identity is uh, British in, in England. No, they're Bahamian people. But the Queen of England is the ruler. Okay? So when this is when we read in Ephesians about the commonwealth of Israel, right? Okay? That yes, I, whoever comes to embrace Yeshua comes under the kingship of the King of Israel. Or as it says when he died, the King of the Jews. Okay? But it, it but it, we get confused then as if to say we change our ethnicity or something. No, we remain who we are. And that's part of the testimony, folks, is remaining who we are, coming under the kingship uh, of the restored Davidic king. Okay? All right. That is a big thing to get out of Acts chapter 2. There's one more thing, okay? One more thing. Uh, so, consequently, later on in the New Covenant, when we read about everything related to the Holy Spirit, you name it, be filled with the Holy Spirit, I, uh, pray in the Spirit, 
walk in the spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. Walk in the spirit. Uh, our hope is in the spirit. It is all related to the promise of the new covenant uh, and of the restored kingship of David. It is not like some kind of divorced thing from its Jewish essence. Everything related to the Ruach is the promise that God made to Israel. And I want to just uh, show you two passages, two well-known. One is in, in Romans chapter 5, and I want us just to notice the terminology because we're, as they say, friends, we're just about out of time. Okay. I used to say that on the radio. Okay. Uh, in Romans chapter 5. I notice verse, I, well, start in verse 3. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been what? Has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That little phrase, poured out, is really important. Paul is identifying this with that. The pouring out of the Ruach. This event that happened when we embrace Yeshua. We become part of that event. Just like as Jews, we become part of the Sinai event, even though we weren't there. We become part of that poured out event on Shavuot. Uh, and so... Uh, you have the Ruach. You have the Ruach because God is faithful to Israel. You uh, are able to have victory in your lives and defeat the flesh and, uh, and have the hope of life forever in Messiah because God is faithful to Israel, as seen in Acts chapter 2. Okay? Because notice, uh, he will go on to say here in chapter 5, uh, of Romans. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Messiah died for the ungodly. Uh, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were sinners, Messiah died uh, uh, for us. And it goes on and on and on, right? And so it's, he is faithful to Israel for the purpose of his faithfulness. To, he's faithful to the world, in his faithfulness to Israel, okay? The other one is in uh, Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, and we'll finish here, I guess. In Titus uh, uh, chapter 3, we read uh, here, okay, here, verse uh, 5, beginning in verse, well, oh, verse 4. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, isn't that a great phrase? Using those are, um, you know, using them to describe the Messiah. When the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Messiah Yeshua, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He is again talking about this pouring out of the Ruach. And in this pouring out of the Ruach, we are regenerated and renewed. Okay? 
Those are big words. I won't take the time to go into all the details, but think about what they mean. Regenerated. Start over, right? It's like being born from above. Uh, we're regenerated. We're, we're not just reconstituted. We're new. Oh, I think the same author uh, that wrote uh, to Titus also wrote a second letter to the Corinthians where he said, we are new creatures in Messiah. That is another way of saying we are regenerated people. See, this is what happens when the Spirit of God is poured out. This is this great promise that God made to Israel. And uh, we don't have time to turn to it, but you know, that word is used in one other place. And it's, it's in a passage where Yeshua says that the world will be regenerated. That the world will be, he calls the world to come the regeneration. It's really interesting. Okay, uh, and, and so the, 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 newness of, the newness of life, we could say. And then, of course, renewal of going to the beginning and starting over. That's what the word renewal there in, in Greek means to really like go back to the beginning and start over. The first word regeneration means like to, to be new. And then the second word emphasizes starting over. And that happens when we receive Yeshua and we have the Ruach. And you see, this is all because of the, the, this uh, fulfillment of the promise that God made back in Jerusalem, uh, or fulfilled in Jerusalem, in pouring out the Ruach uh, on that day. And as we'll see in Acts, it starts in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. And then we see the travels of Paul, Asia Minor and Europe, the remotest part of the earth, you see. Uh, and so it's quite a dynamic message. So may we be encouraged to know that, wow, you know, I, not only are we believing this like all other Messiah followers, but we're living this out uh, kind of the way that Luke had uh, understood the passage to, to be, that uh, we understand uh, that this is a Jewish uh, message. And right here to Jewish people, Yes, for the sake of the nations, but may we be motivated to bring this message to Israel, to the Jewish people, the way Peter does. You know, the good news is that the Messiah has come, that the King of Israel has come, and to focus on his kingship, that Messiah, the King of Israel, yes, has come. No, we don't see him uh, uh, here, it's, it's, uh, but he is at the right hand of God, and here's evidence of it right here at Beth Messiah Congregation. There you go. How do I know this is true? Well, look at, look at this. Look, look at how we conduct ourselves uh, here at Beth Messiah. Uh, uh, wow, I guess it is kind of a Jewish thing, and I guess it is a, a Jewish expression. Uh, and so may we be forthright uh, in sharing real good news uh, for Israel uh, and our community, uh, and, uh, and the world. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that uh, the coming of the Messiah is really great news for us. In him is redemption. We have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And the kingdom of his beloved son is, once again, that Israelite kingdom. And thank you, Lord, that you have revealed that to us. And, uh, and so, God, may uh, we be able to share the good news, uh, kind of like Peter did. Uh, and, uh, and may, God, you bring the kind of fruit uh, that Peter saw. 
And uh, may we have that same kind of zeal, uh, Lord, in the way we live, the way we conduct ourselves, and in the message that we share. And we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.